0: You're listening every Weekend, your Ignore Cap of All Things Ember. This is episode 39. I'm Chase McCarthy. And I'm Jonathan Jackson, and we're here
1: to keep you in the Ember Run Loop. We're broadcasting from HashRig at HQ. It's December 21st, and today is the conclusion of our two part interview with Chris Thoburn, Whacked Out Hegemony.
2: So, what, one of the more interesting things that I've learned in this project is what the relative advantages of recycling versus tear down and rebuilding are. Initially, I felt that Teardown and Rebuilding wasn't so expensive that it couldn't compete with Recycling, especially because if you're in a situation where the content is highly dynamic, maybe uh, what you're iterating over in this list is depending on some type as for what component it's going to render. If you're in that situation, then when you Recycle, you honestly don't get a lot of wins in Ember's current state when it comes to having recycled DOM because you, you actually do tear things down and replace it anyway and there's additional processing involved to figure that out. So my benchmarking at first, it seemed to me that uh, as long as Ember did initial render really fast, which has you know varied over time with, depending on your Ember version how, how fast Ember's initial render is. But as long as Ember's initial render speed was very fast, that doing this with a, with a blind teardown setup uh, process was going to be no better no worse than recycling over time i've come to realize that that was a flaw and it was a flaw for two reasons in neither of those reasons is actually the speed and with which you can tear down and set up Uh, right now speed's lagging a little bit but uh, ember does uh have you know glimmer 2 coming which will reverse a lot of the initial render issues there but the the big the big advantage to not blindly tearing down and reusing is the virtualization of the additional pieces. When you recycle, the strategy is, is that uh, you basically leave a gap above and a gap below the items on screen. And then as an item leaves the screen, you're gonna take it off and put it underneath and then attach the new content to it. So the advantage to that is it has a lower memory overhead. And it has a lower memory overhead because the DOM, you're not leaving anything behind in the DOM as a wrapper like I currently am. And yes, I could just coalesce those DOM wrappers in, down into one as, as I go by. But what I found when I was profiling was that Chrome holds on to memory allocations for DOM nodes beyond the life cycle of even a page refresh. Once you open a tab, as you create additional DOM nodes, if the memory allocation for DOM grows, it never shrinks for that tab. So if you release memory that you were retaining for a JavaScript object, that eventually gets reclaimed by the system. But if you release memory that you had bound for DOM nodes, that never gets reclaimed, Mm -hmm. it'll get reused. Like that memory space will get reused, but it never shrinks which means that if you really wanna build applications that are long lived in Chrome's current state, and this is more than Chrome, it's, it's Safari, Chrome, Opera. I haven't measured it in Firefox, but it's a fairly persistent problem it seems. You really want to avoid creating excess DOM. So you wanna virtualize as much DOM as you can, and you want to keep as many things as JavaScript objects as you can. So the next iteration with smoke and mirrors addresses what is basically a memory leak in Chrome by moving to the recycling strategy and deciding that the recycling strategy was in fact a better strategy. But it's only a better strategy if you're able to optimize for that strategy, meaning that you are specifically in a list of the same item type that you are going over and over and over. You still don't want to lose the flexibility of a lot of the other things. And having built it the way I did, you're going to get to keep your flexibility and still have recycling. But it'll lower that memory leak issue over time with the tab. And it'll lower the use, memory usage at runtime as well by, again, never needing to allocate that memory to the DOM nodes. It's the JavaScript objects that it's replaced with have a much smaller allocation and are far more discardable. So on that sense, Ember Collection had one thing right, which was recycling can be a More performant approach, especially for Android, where these sorts of concerns become a lot larger. But on the other hand, by building it the way I built it, I already have the primitives in place that any piece of content on the screen doesn't matter what it is. I just need to grab its dimensions and tear it down. And then later I can bring it back, which unlocks a lot more functionality than was present in Ember Collection. And additionally, because I focused so hard on the right, building the right primitive for doing this work during scroll, figuring out like, when was the right time to do the work? What work needs to be done? How do I manage the state? And taking that process and abstracting it from the list behavior itself, I can do a lot more than just a vertical list. Right now, the main feature is a vertical collection. There's other components to this library, but the main feature is the vertical collection. But a, a coming PR in the next day or so that another guy is working on is the horizontal collection. The total code rewrite needed for this was one small layer of abstraction, one of the key functions, and that's a key function that's not even going to exist anymore once the recycling comes into play, and a couple of setting toggles. That was all it took to take this from being something that was optimized for vertical to something that's optimized for horizontal. The same thing is going to end up happening for grids. Instead of having one collection that tries to handle every layout scenario, I'll have a service that handles occlusion when it comes to your app as a whole. And then specific components optimized for their use case for things that are more critical. So you have a vertical list, you use a vertical list. You have a horizontal list, you use a horizontal list. You have a grid, you use the grid helper. And by doing that, I'm able to choose the best optimization strategy for what it is you're actually doing without bloating the size of the component and making its inner workings very complex and difficult. So then there's a second advantage to the recycling. And that second advantage is that Nolan Lawson has this amazing blog post that just came out on Pokedex.org. So you should Google that and uh, read his blog post take down on how he built that. It's an app that runs on every platform. It's exactly the kind of app that I'm telling people Ember should enable us to build more easily. It's coming in the future, that this is, this is the future of how we're gonna build apps. Nolan Lawson, he read my blog post on how to do this. He read a couple of other blog posts from the guys in the Angular and, and React communities. He started thinking about this really heavily himself. He started just reaching out to everybody and pinging them and getting ideas. Didn't tell us what he was doing, but he pinged all these ideas off of us, goes out and he builds a prototype that proves that all of this works. And one of the key things that he did just something that's been in the back of my mind, but way further out there, is he moved his logic for infinite scroll into his web worker. If I virtualize most of what the collection is doing, then I can do that as well. You decouple it from needing the DOM and it enables you to do the work where there's more availability to do the work. I think that's a really important optimization to enable going forward. And a really big reason why recycling actually is the right way to go forward. And virtualization is the right way to go forward.
0: When you say reuse, is there, is there any manual process in this? Do, do, does a user have to actually like, give you some kind of reuse ID or something for you to know that they intend for something to be reused? Or is this all automatic?
2: This is all automatic.
0: It seems like that's something that uh, could actually be useful, like kind of an underlying, like in in, in Glimmerland. I mean, I don't, need, I don't know if they're already doing something
2: like this. So remember how Glimmer asks you for a key and everybody was really confused about that at first?
0: Right, right.
2: Okay, so that key is still there. Right now it's set to a sensible default, but that key option is still there. I'm actually using that key to do the recycling. I I set the ID to be the index, not the index within Glimmer, the index of the item, that it, like the backing component for the item. And so when I say that, five moves into the one position because that key fire five becomes the one glimmer does the recycling for me i don't actually have to manually write any of the logic for doing the dom recycling it's awesome Glimmer is a really powerful primitive underneath this but what i have to do is just make sure that glimmer knows the what is supposed to be where right
1: right now that's super cool that needs to be like condensed into like a like a white paper I feel like I feel like there's a lot. There's so much. There's so much to this.
2: Right. I've written two or three blog posts now on all this process.
1: Yeah, I read. I read the the WebWorker one. Yeah. was Great.
2: It it's just there's so there's so many different pieces to this vision of how do we take Ember and make it the first mobile first framework, really a a an, a full app framework for any platform, but especially mobile. And because there's so many pieces, I've tried writing blog posts on it. I've tried giving talks on it. Now doing this podcast on it. It's hard to explain in any one chunk. There's just too, too many pieces that are coming together at once to really enable this.
1: Yeah. Well, and you still have, you still have what we were talking about at the very beginning of the podcast, which is just, there's still a lot of people who are not even at the SPA stage. So they don't even want to see that. And this is like a whole nother set of things that are possible. And I see, I see a lot of confusion there.
0: Yeah, for sure even the web workers have been you know in place for a long time i don't think most people have have used them at all or if they have it is like me where i was just like oh i have some really intense calculation i want to do now is a good time for it to use this but what what this you know this blog post is outlining is like the web worker is where most of your stuff happens and the and the the main one is just kind of like i guess that's just rendering or yeah animations uh, UI. and rendering right yeah
2: the way i uh, explain that is it's the ui assembly thread Uh, So it deals with UI assembly and it deals with user interaction, but everything else Mm. gets offloaded.
0: Right. And that's everything you want to be fast because it's like the user needs that really quick response time.
2: Exactly. It's keeping your thread decluttered so that it can focus on what it's really there for, which is interacting with the user instead of doing everything else that Uh, your app needs to also be running like fetching data and processing data and preparing the next thing to be rendered and figuring out some complex computation for what should be displayed. That stuff, while it's important, it shouldn't be on the main thread because you really, if you want a good user experience, you have to keep it open as much as possible. Whether it's animation or whether it's just in preparation to receive the next user input event.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense the po- the pokédex uh, blog post is really uh I don't know it does a really great breakdown of it too so it's it was very approachable i like that
2: yeah i i love what he did with that blog post because it takes these things that i've been trying to explain to people for almost a year now and makes them easily seen and accessible and it i'm teaching a class on this process uh at the Chicago Innovation Exchange starting in january it's a 20 week class uh, twice a week, and the goal is to take you from knowing almost nothing about web tech to building an app that is cross-platform in Ember and delivering it in basically about a hundred hours of of class time and probably three or four times that much outside of class. So, one of the awesome things about his timing with this is I got to actually have an example of "Hi, this is what it is. I'm teaching you, and this is the <laughs> approach and what you can do with it." Versus it being, hi, this is an emerging approach that you can do that blah, blah, blah. There's, there's a concrete thing out there. Right. Because a lot of what I've done with this, like while well, I've built a lot of the pieces or started planning all of the pieces or even where I've put them together and, and had an app, I've, I haven't had the ability to really give people the whole vision at once where you can just go, oh, wow, yeah, that really does work. I really love the awareness that brings to these new features that are out there that are ready for us to start using if we start building the right primitives with them.
0: So, what kind of changes would have to happen, like kind of an underlying Ember, like inside of Glimmer, for for this to happen? I mean, this seems like if you're talking about offloading all of the rendering, that's like so all of all of Glimmer is running in a background uh, worker.
2: I'm not sure if I would unload all of it, but I would definitely try to figure out. What parts of it are optimal to unload? Mm -hmm. And if I had to take a guess where that starts, is rendering an entirely new route. So you're going from route A to route B. Instead of your liquid fire transition starting and halfway through trying to render the entire new scene and potentially turning into a choppy transition for a few frames there, having signaled to the web worker at the beginning that, hi, I need this route, receiving it back and throwing in an entirely generated DOM structure. When I started testing around with this to see you know, how much uh, time could I save here, how, much is, how well is this actually going to work? And this is a, this is a metric that, uh, take it with a grain of salt, because you need a lot of like hooking up things to do from the JS, JS perspective, because you, you get string DOM back from the web worker. But I think we could take it from, you have a, something that might be a 50 to 100 millisecond render time, down to something that would be two to five milliseconds for an entirely new page. Hmm. And that's an, that's an amount of time where you throw that in in the middle of an animation frame and nobody even notices. Right. right now, those transitions on mobile, if you were really, really good at what you do and keeping a clean data flow and only making it render once and optimizing all these different things, you still probably have a lot of roots in your app on mobile, that are stuttery at some point in their transition, and that's something where uh, that's something you can build over top of. Like I have this really good primitive in Smoke and Mirrors for knowing what's where on screen. I always anything that you've registered with that radar, I in a very performant way know its relative position to where it is on screen. Start tracking links. Whenever the link is close to coming into the viewport, you pre-render it if it's really far away from the viewport you tear it down. It gives you the ability to without even much dev input predictively render the next thing in the app. That's very cool. So web workers really excite me. I met, you mentioned I have the blog post on it. Uh it's blog.runspired.com. Uh it's the, my latest blog post. It's from a while back.
1: Yeah, we'll link to it. It's awesome.
2: Uh there's actually a, there is a project behind that. It's not the project name that I put into that blog post. I hadn't really solidified on the name at the time. Uh, the project is Skyrocket. So if you go to runspired slash skyrocket on GitHub, you'll find it. And the work fair is very elementary. We are not very far with it. But there's an overview similar to the readme.md. There's an overview.md that takes you through all of stage one, what the public-facing APIs are going to look like, some of what how the internal stuff is going to be implemented and uh, what the project's direction is. And really what I've been thinking about for a good six to eight months uh, in Ember is what can we do in Emberland to make using a worker as easy as using a service? So if you've ever created and used a service in your Ember app, having a web worker that offloads some heavy task for you and making that as easy to do as just Ember G service, write a method, inject the service somewhere, call the method. So I've come up with uh, this concept of an interface. The interface is a model for how you're going to interact with a web worker. It declares various asynchronous primitives that are going to exist as keys within the worker itself that you can interact with via the same key in your app. So if you call method on the interface, that method is invoked in the worker. Or if you consume something in the interface, it's always the latest state that it can access of that property from the worker. Or if you want a stream or an event to trigger an event or an observable, anything that we currently interact with that's asynchronous, you just define uh, on this interface, you declare it as, this is a stream, this is an observ- observable, this is a snapshot, this is a function. And anything that is like a method is gonna return a promise. The only thing that isn't fully asynchronous is a uh, snapshot. Snapshot is basically property. It just says that this is a property that exists within the web worker and I wanna be able to access it. But because uh, web workers unlock parallelism, they don't come with concurrency you don't actually know the state of a variable within the worker unless the web worker has sent it to you. And at the point it sent it to you, it could have changed already within the web worker. So a snapshot is just what we know about that property at the last time we see something from the worker. It's sort of like a if you ever used Ember data to save a model and your adapter, you receive a snapshot. It's the state of that model at the point save was called, but it could have changed since. The same concept here. It's it's the point of that property within the worker, the last point it was accessed, but it could have changed since. And that's good enough for for most situations. So really, what I want you to do is just interact with this interface via computed properties, via methods, via eventing, the way that you would interact with any service in your application. The the fact that it's actually accessing things and running things in a web worker is 100% hidden from you you never build the worker in the sense that like you create the worker file but it looks like any other module that you create in your application it just is a service that does some things it doesn't you, you don't have to know anything about how web workers work what their limitations are or how you interface with them from a thread to another thread
0: yeah it seems like uh with embers kind of like core you know the the, the promise structure around it that everybody's used to now um it was it was weird if you know a couple years ago to me and that was one of the, the asynchronous nature of workers was one of the things I struggled with every time I tried to use them, uh, and that kind of the message passing ends up happening. Uh, but with Ember, with you know promises everywhere and everybody used to it, and then even you know a good serializer deserializer, um, it could really become like you're saying, just an invisible layer you just don't know. You just you create a worker service or whatever, and it you just get it kind of for free.
2: Exactly. I mean, to me, the reason we, people don't use web workers more is friction, it's developer friction. It's hard to build a web worker because you don't necessarily know what APIs are available to you. It's hard to use a web worker because PostMessage has a lot of things that you have to learn and it's the only API you have to interact with that worker. And the worker needs to be its own standalone file or you have to create it via a blob. And in either of those cases, it's another piece in your asset pipeline that you likely have to wire up. And even in Ember CLI's current state, you have to wire up in a very unique way. Like the easiest way right now is just drop a completely built file into your public assets. You don't have any of the same build tooling that you get with Ember CLI for the rest of your app. So with Skyrocket, I want to change that. I want to make it where it's just like any other module, it's going to build itself. You can use ES6 import, export, and at the end of the day, you have a built worker file that runs as an app. And when the interface is injected and instantiates, it's going to take the URL that was auto generated for it for where that worker is going to be in your app. It's going to load that URL as a worker and start interfacing with it. And it will manage that whole connection. So, from your perspective as a developer, all you ever know about this worker is that you had a module file that looked a lot like all your other module files. And then you're interacting with it in an asynchronous way the same way that you asynchronously interact with a lot of other things in your application. It's the same primitives you already know. It's the same modules you already know. And really, it's sort of just magical, the fact that this will enable you to have something running on a different thread. And I think if we build this and really just make it that dead simple to use one, who knows what we see getting turned into things that usually run in web workers? I mean, the easy picking is to run number data in the web worker, but there's so many other things. What, do we offload Glimmer? Do we, can we do all of fastboot in a worker and get some stuff out of that? How much of the virtualization and, and logic from smoke and mirrors can we push into a worker? Does that have any benefits? There's so many unknowns because not a lot of people have pushed web workers to really be a part of their application yet that I think having the right primitives unlocks a lot of exploration as to what we even need them for.
0: Right. And, and this seems like something that could really benefit Ember as a whole in the end, because there's a lot of complex problems that you're going to have to solve uh, to get a lot of this to work, you know, because you're going to have to load, you know, each web worker is basically going to have a mini Ember environment. Um, so it seems like doing something like tree shaking uh, and making sure that the you know the memory footprint is small um, is going to be really important.
2: So uh, the interesting thing about this is that uh, it, not so much tree shaking. There's a little bit of that. Uh, I've been waiting for Ember CLI Packager as uh, the big thing because what I really want uh, to do is write a uh, basically a post process uh, hook that goes and grabs all of the worker JS files from within your workers. Direct directory going down into the different ones that you've created. And then uses those as the starting point. Anything you've imported, it's going to go in include for you. And it's just going to start building your whole app. You can import anything you would import normally in your app. Granted, if it's DOM related, you're going to get an error, but, uh, or it's not going to work quite right. And version 1. But the build process itself will be pretty easy. Version 2 of this is start detecting when various APIs are in use or give you a way to declare when APIs are in use, maybe even just by importing like a utility belt for the worker, like import DOM environment or import Ember. And with, uh, with that, the fast boot work is really doing the work of solving the problem that web workers have. Because you don't have a DOM in Node, you don't have a DOM in a web worker. So the simple DOM solution for fast boot is likely the same solution that we need for the web worker. We may need something a little bit heavier. We may have to go all the way to JS DOM, or we may have to expand simple DOM to do some more things, have some more APIs. But at the end of the day, the problems that Fastboot is facing server-side are the same as the API constraints that we face in a worker. So as Fastboot matures, those solutions can be brought back to Skyrocket to enable you to have more features, more behaviors in your web workers, potentially even running an entire instance of your Ember app.
1: That's really cool. I I you know, when you said when when I read through your blog posts about web workers, that's sort where of, I kept on thinking about like, oh, fast boot is like this is like made. This is prime time candidacy for legitimate use of, of these fast boot techniques. You just throw them into web workers and you get all this crazy cool stuff.
2: Yeah, there's there's a lot of things that you know these are texts that are being unlocked. We have a new ability now to build multi-threaded JavaScript applications. I think that that's a legitimate claim is that the web today can create multi-threaded applications. And it's a matter not of how long until we start doing that, but of just getting the right primitives in place and seeing what people do.
1: Right? Could you talk a little bit about how you use Backburner and, uh, and maybe kind of the intricacies of how to use it?
2: Yeah, so uh, that's something I uh, experimented with a lot in smoke and Mirrors. I went through this process of how much work do I want to async? Because the the core problem that you have when you're doing any sort of list view or recycling or long list uh, implementation optimizations is that you're listening to scroll and deciding how and when during scroll to do work. And that work can range from a very minor update of make that one item visible to a very major update of make a whole string of items visible. Ranging from the user scrolled just a few pixels, and so not much has changed, to the user did a rapid scroll all the way up the page or all the way up the scrollable div, and you're just throwing things around like crazy. So when you're optimizing for that, there's this common technique of throttling things and debouncing things and backburner has throttle and debounce mechanisms built in and that's where i began this process but uh if you don't know backburner uh i definitely recommend reading up on it uh it's a little micro library that got pulled out of ember and then uh is the the guts of what is known as the ember run loop Uh, if you use ember run ever it's really just a backburner. So what backburner is, is it's a, a series of queues. And a, a queue, in a lot of ways, is just an array. And when you push onto a queue, it triggers a flush of that queue. Uh, that flush is triggered via set timeout, and it's just a set timeout of zero or null just to async the flushing of the queue. And so anything that you push into that queue, from the moment that that timeout's been triggered until, that function is actually executed, is gonna get batched together in the same loop cycle. And each queue will flush in order. So you have named queues and everything in one, a queue of one name happens before the queue of the next name in the, in the series. So for Ember, the queues go sync, actions, render, after render. There's some other magical stuff in there and there used to be more, uh, uh, Ember data used to add some things and uh, sometimes you get add-ons, adding custom things to it. But those are the big ones. And then there's a destroy uh, queue even after that, which is where teardown things uh, happen. So each one of those uh, queues within Ember's guts serves a specific purpose. And when you schedule something or just call next or run uh, in, in general, it goes into actions. But if you know that something maybe isn't render affecting, you might choose to schedule it using run schedule into after render. Or maybe you know it needs to happen during the render cycle and you schedule it into render. So I spent a, a lot of time choosing where in the run loop I would put specific work. I would be, okay, that gets scheduled into after render, that gets scheduled into actions, that gets scheduled into sync because I need it to happen first, that gets scheduled here and there. And before I knew it, I had a huge tangled mess within this single component of places that I was using BackBurner. And I had an, a subclass that I built just to keep track of them and make sure they all got torn down when you left the component, if any scheduled work was still out there that needed to be discarded. And as I dug into the profiler, once I got past all the, all the big wins of oh, that, that's a slow way of doing this, so this is a slow way of doing that, it came down to my bottleneck was back burner. My bottleneck was back burner in a pretty bad way.
1: Hmm.
2: And what it turned out was, when you start asyncing things all over the place, it's possible to async too much. It's possible to over optimize when you're doing the work. Because the idea of asyncing the work, the idea of running the throttle and then scheduling the work to a specific point in another async loop, was that you have a lot of work to do and you don't want it to happen very often, but when it does happen, you want it to happen in an organized way. That part of the idea is good. That is the, what you need to focus on is that's your strategy. You want to do work at the optimal time in an organized way. And out of the box, generally speaking, Backburner's pretty good at that. But in the situation I'm in, a scroll event, even when you're throttling it, is scheduling so many things that Backburner ends up doing a lot of work to figure out, is it the right time to flush the queue? Is it the right time to schedule this? Push this in, pull this out. And uh, very quickly, even though you think things are organized, things are no longer organized. But what's worse is you lose execution context. That set timeout, the real reason for it was you wanted it async, right? The throttle, the real reason for it was you didn't want to trigger too much work in a given given frame, because you want to preserve 60 FPS. So a very common throttle is 16 milliseconds. You know, it kind of sort of fakes the fact that you have a whole frame's budget worth there for 60 FPS. The problem with that is you have no execution context at the point that your stuff is actually invoked. You don't know anything about the current workload of the app, and you don't know anything about how much work needs to actually be done in this frame. You've just been told to do work. And that execution context matters. And what I found was, because I didn't have that execution context anymore, one of the use cases that I struggled really hard to support was prepending content to your list above the fold. So my infinite scroll solution isn't just an infinite scroll for going down. You can infinite scroll in either direction, which is perfect if you're implementing the next Twitter and you wanna give somebody the ability to hit the back button restore the same state they were at on the page and still go up or down. Or maybe something like Facebook, which is a little bit more challenging because that content's gonna be dynamic height. But the problem was, when I didn't have control over the execution context, it meant I also didn't have control over the process of insert content, determine height, adjust the scroll state to account for that height, render. And instead of being able to do that all within one frame, I would always have two to three frames in play for it, which meant that there was always a flicker. And sometimes, if I was really careful, I would be able to do the right combination of scheduling and throttling in a specific sort of way to kind of force it and coerce it to be down into the same frame. But even then, on a coin coin toss, sometimes it would flicker. So I really needed a solution that did what I wanted, which was determine the optimal moment to perform the work and do the work in an organized way that preserved execution context, that didn't discard the knowledge of a prepend happened and you're prepending and you want to adjust the scroll position and you want to insert the content and then you want to reset the scroll position so that the user is still in the same place and you don't want it to flicker. Make sure that all of that happens in the same frame. And as I examine that, I realized that there was this awesome tool called request animation frame. I'd been using it for some other stuff. And so I brought it in and I tried to use it for smoke and mirrors for scheduling the work. It didn't work. It actually made the problem worse. And it made the problem worse because I was using it in a very limited way. I was using it just the schedule, the work in the run loop that actually took care of that process of reset the top and get to new height and reset the top. So just that, just that part. But everything else was still running through Backburner in Backburner's normal setup, and Backburner using set timeout and Backburner throttling and debouncing. The result of which was that I didn't have a guarantee yet whether the the loop in which Ember would insert the content had actually occurred or not. That loop could have flushed before or after my animation frame flushed. Because set timeout and requestAnimationFrame don't interact with each other very well. So once I realized that the solution was to override set timeout globally to use request animation frame if the timeout was zero or null and then defer back to the native set timeout in any other situation and the reason I had to do that globally is that backburner uses the global set timeout and there's no way to override it unless you override it globally so hopefully in the very very near future we'll be able to push uh, backburner to have a, the ability to make that configurable for us so that we don't right. have to do
1: like this. Like configurable set timeout?
2: Right, so we don't have to do this dirty dirty hack uh, of uh, a global override. Once I did that, I realized that, to be honest, throttle and debounce are a code smell because what is request animation frame? It's the perfect throttle. It's only ever going to execute once per frame. If the amount of work it needs to do is longer than one frame, it takes up more than one frame. So if you're trying to throttle something because of your frame budget, you shouldn't be using throttle anymore. You shouldn't be using debounce anymore. You should just be using request animation frame and then ensuring that within that animation frame, the work is scheduled in an organized way and only happens once. So once I have backburner, which there's an add-on that you can install to do this in your app, even if you don't want to use Smoke and Mirrors. It's, it's Ember Run RAF, RAF being Request Animation Frame. So once once you have that, instead of debounce, instead of throttle, you schedule once in Ember with backburner. You can either schedule, which just pushes a function, a method, and context and parameters onto the in, into the queue, or you can schedule once, which makes ensures that only the last instance you push in is executed of that particular method context combination. So on scroll now, I'm just scheduling once into backburner. I'm I'm not even I'm not debouncing my scroll handlers at all and it works better than it ever did with throttle or debounce. I just schedule once and backburner is using request the animation frame flush to flush the work. Once you get into that, everything else that I had been trying to figure out the execution context for is all happening in that same run loop because it's all been pushed into the same request animation frame. And partly, that's because now that I'm using request animation frame for everything, I don't have this fight against set timeout and request animation frame. But also partly, this is because of a side effect of request animation frame that I think is awesome for Ember apps in general. It acts as its own little mini queue coalescer because when you call request animation frame, no matter when you call it or how many times you call it, you're requesting the same animation frame as long as it's the next one. It's whatever the next one is. When you call set timeout, you're just adding something to be executed further down the road. They're not flattened. They're just stacking. Request animation frame is flattened. So this gives you the chance to take several, what would have been several runs of the run loop and run them simultaneously instead of having run them at different points in time over roughly a 14 to 16 millisecond time period. You might not see the benefit of that at first until you realize, well, that's gonna cut down on the work I'm doing to render because a lot of things are scheduled once and therefore I'm doing less work. But the really big benefit I've seen with this is you can change how your network requests are coalesced because things that were previously being asynchronously scheduled for individual finds, if you've ever seen that coalesce find requests, they now get pushed into the same run loop instance when they wouldn't have been before. You're doing more coalescing because you have a better, wider net that you can cast, but it's on the same budget that you already had because you already wanted to do all this work within one frame. And now you're just doing it smarter by only ensuring that the final flush happens once in in a frame instead of multiple flushes per frame that conflict with each other. Right. So I really think that backburner, amazing, the ability to organize your work, amazing. But set timeout, throttle, and debounce are just code smells because they don't address the underlying issue, which is that we want to choose when we're doing work smartly. And requestAnimationFrame lets us do this.
0: Very cool. Is this something that kind of goes away once we have uh, web workers running most of the kind of heavier tasks, though?
2: Absolutely not. Okay. Because this actually, this improves our ability, even in any situation that it's used in, it improves our ability to ensure that the amount of work we're doing is exactly the amount of work we should be doing. If you can't meet your frame budget, if your frame budget is larger than 16 milliseconds, you will know that immediately and you know what you need to focus on.
0: Okay, so this is something that would run on the, the main UI thread and like every request of an animation frame, it would it would call into the worker and say... Uh, I need I need data, or I guess the, the, would the worker have to do it every sixteen milliseconds on its own?
2: So, so within the context of the worker, I'm not actually hundred percent sure if requestAnimationFrame is is present.
0: Right, I, I wouldn't think it would be.
2: But that optimization is less needed there. But this is definitely mm. something there where on the main UI thread, I don't see a reason to not be doing everything this way, because when you're on that main UI thread, you're really asking yourself a limited handful of questions how do i prevent doing unnecessary work and how do i rank the importance of work that i'm doing and the way you prevent doing unnecessary work is to use request animation frame to coalesce that work and then use backburner within it to organize that work there's this other api that's coming that's not as ubiquitous and widespread as request animation frame that's request idle callback and that's going to let us more smartly deal with work that's less important. But when you have work that is important, but you don't wanna do unnecessary work, I don't think using set timeout in any context, even for set timeout 0 is the right answer. That was a hack that we used to async things because we need to async them, but it's not actually the solution that we were looking for. We were looking for a way to optimally choose when I needed to execute something. And instead, we've got lulled into this trap of asking, How often do I need to execute something? And return, getting rid of set timeout, getting rid of debounce and throttle, and coming back to request animation frame as the, as the primitive we use for this gives us our execution context back and lets us be smarter about how we actually do that work and choose when to do it.
0: Very cool. Yeah, that, that seems really interesting. Uh I guess I've got to read up a lot on uh, on backburner. I've never really had to dig into it much. I saw I saw the
1: EmberRef like add-on thing, but I haven't actually looked into it.
2: Yeah, it's something where yeah, you know, unless you're doing a lot of work on mobile, it's not an optimization that you've learned about yet. But once you go to mobile and you start really thinking about your frame budget, it's one of the first things you learn. And as ember apps become real applications as you move from a traditional web framework to spas and then on to actual applications knowing mobile i think is more important than knowing desktop because what mobile's taught me in this last few years is that thinking mobile first as a developer it surfaces better patterns it surfaces better architecture it's uh it it surfaces better performance in your app, and it surfaces better even UI, UX designs because the constraint on your processing power, the constraint the device gives you, uh, both processing power and screen size, causes you to ask the hard questions of how do I do this and what's important. And I think we're going to see a lot of that start coming back to desktop apps now that so much of the web is mobile first because we have to solve these problems for mobile we can't just assume well someday down in the future these devices are going to be more powerful we need to actually address the architectural concerns of how do we build it better so that it works on these devices really well and then those are gains and those are wins that get backported to desktop for us where desktop apps that were already pretty good become truly amazing experiences
0: cool that's a really cool answer so uh, what do you think the Ember community uh, can learn from other open source communities like uh, the React community or the Rails community?
2: I uh, Normally when I get asked a question like this, it's coming the other direction. It's what can a community learn from Ember? Uh, so this to me is a hard uh, question to answer from a community perspective. From a technical perspective, I think there's a lot that Ember can still learn from other communities. But from a community perspective, I think Ember's done an amazing job and continues to do an amazing job. Uh, I really love the focus on in- inclusion and that, that Ember has. Uh, from a technical perspective, I think we're still missing the big picture when it comes to React, that we have a lot to learn from React still. Uh, virtual DOM, cool, interesting. Componentization, cool, interesting. Data down actions up, cool, interesting. I think where where we're really getting beat by React is in flexibility, because you can take small portions of an existing UI, whether it's a traditional web app, whether it's an SBA, whether it's some hybrid, it doesn't matter what it is, and very easily componentize it and have a React component running without having to have rewrite everything, which makes it much more ideal for most development life cycles because you can pick and choose the key points in which you go in and you make something better and over time grow out an SBA from what was a static web page. Whereas with Ember, it's kind of all or nothing at the moment. There's Ember Islands, there's Ember Turbolinks, there's these kind of sort of hackish ways of allowing you to do some of what React lets you do, but we're really missing that flexibility aspect, and I think that flexibility aspect enables React to be a lot more nimble on its feet, and is enabling it to iterate a lot faster at the moment than Ember is, uh, and I would love to see us catch up to that.
1: So what do you think that uh, Ember's community has to offer, has to teach other communities? Like what can other communities take away from Ember and kind of strengthen their own, their own area?
2: I was privy to a really awesome conversation after the Chicago meetup last night, Trek. And uh, I don't actually know his name, d Jeb, I think it's Dan Gebhardt, maybe? hmm yeah. Yeah, so he, came, he's in, he was in Chicago for the week, so he came to the meetup last night. And so we're getting a beer afterwards. And we were talking about some of the the processes that Yehuda put into place for how the Ember core team works, how people uh, join core, leave core, the fact that there's an alumni process. uh, And because there's an alumni process, it's a little bit easier for people to step back. And I I loved that. It was kind of some of the conversation was just, these are some things that, Yehuda learned from the mistake of jQuery and Rails not having those things. Uh, and so that's something I think the Ember community can teach other communities from the technical perspective. Is in we do a really good job with like community management and inclusion, as I mentioned. But where we also do a really good job is the technical management at the top. Everything I know talking to core team members, there's often, you know, the same bickering let's do it this way let's do it that way Uh, but it comes to really good common solutions and it does it in a way that really empowers open source you don't have a single company coming and saying this is what we're doing you don't have even just a few companies coming and saying this is what you're doing you have a lot of ideas coming into the fold you have a lot of people able to give their input on those ideas you've got a a pretty clear structure for how those ideas get filtered and developed over time and implemented, and when it's time to to step back and say, you know uh, I'm not the right person for this anymore, or my you know my involvement here, I've done everything I set out to do, maybe I, it's time for me to move on, this alumni process lets you step back and do that. And what's great about that for an open source community that isn't you know company backed like so many other open source communities are, is I feel in order to be successful and thrive, you have to really pull a lot of people from a lot of smaller companies and different areas and private consultants to really make it thrive, which means that there's a lot more cooks in the kitchen. So having this alumni process is a guarantee that you can put all these different cooks in the kitchen, but not kill and smother the project over time because... Too many cooks stayed in the kitchen.
0: <laughs> That's a fun metaphor. <laughs> too many cooks in the kitchen. It seems interesting that like I I, I don't even know anybody who was actually left being the core. I mean, it, it seems like everybody who's there right now is like super super active. I know there's there's a couple people that kind of drop off, um, and 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 other people tend to really just pick up things exactly when when they need to be. And I never really realized that there was such a defined process of uh you know of kind of like you know passing the ball to the next person.
2: Yeah, I think only one person has left at this point. I think that was Peter Wagenet. I am not not sure that's how you pronounce his last name. Yeah. Uh but uh yeah, you know, it's only only one person has set back it, but that's still, you know, infinitely more people than Rails.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean I I I have noticed that like um there there were some libraries I was using where you can see a clear separation of like who was responsible for it. And I never thought about um that somewhere behind the scenes that was it was a very clear you know, switch um, with no real friction. And, and it makes a lot of sense that there's, there's a lot of handoff going off, you know, people have lives and get busy and, and, you know, even if they don't actually completely step back, they get, they become less active for a period of time and, and then pick back up. And it's, uh, it's nice that there's a lot of thought put into everything. That's, that's one of the things I realized was that every, every piece of every, um, you know, every core library, uh, everyone who's there doing something, there's, there's a lot of thought put into it, um, uh, much more than I, than I think a lot of, um, you know, frameworks have, um, even like I was looking at like Cordova is the one I like to pick on, but, um, you know, it was made by, by a company and then sold to another company and then kind of halfway broken off and it's got kind of, kind of support, but there's two-year-old tickets on it. Um, and, and you'll never see that in Ember. Like I really, I think Ember spoiled me. Um, every time I look at another computer uh, community, I, I kind of, uh, do, do, do like Ember colored glasses.
2: And, and, you know, I think it's, a. Uh... A really big testament to the quality of Ember as a framework that we miss is the reason it's a great framework is there's a great tech team behind it. And it's a great tech team behind it, despite having all these chefs, because there really is a great organizational process at the top.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Very cool. Yeah. So uh, are there any personal projects that are consuming most of your time now? Obviously we talked about smoke and mirrors, which I'm sure takes quite a bit of your time. Uh, Anything that you're trying to work on uh, a lot and uh, any help, uh, places where people can maybe contribute?
2: Always, I've got two projects right now that are really eating up a lot of my time. One is just in the working stages, we talked about that, it's Skyrocket. Uh, So if you're really interested in this idea of building better primitives to make it really easy for people to use web workers, Give me a ping on the slack or even in the repo, and uh really as as long as you're willing to put in the work and kind of agree overall with the general direction that it's going, just wherever you can fit in fit in and i'll I'll help you with that uh the other project is is kind of sort of like stealth mode, but getting close to being able to go public uh it's an API framework it's called driven there's some uh there's a driven and a driven cli repo that are public right now but they really don't contain anything at all in them uh, so if you go looking you can start them it's where there will be eventually but the the work is all in this private uh, project i've been working on the tldr there and if again is an interesting idea you're really interested in i think this is where i could use more community building because with most projects i've worked on they're ember related specifically and so people in the ember community have stepped in uh kind of come around it as a, as a as a solution with this this is my first open source foray really far outside of ember but it's not as far outside as it seems at first it's it's a it's a api framework built over node and express everything is es6 and es7 including import and export because it's built over top of ember cli I did the same thing that Angular CLI did, where I consume Ember CLI as a dependency, and then I modify a few things. And in doing so, I get the whole asset pipeline, I get add-ons, uh, You know everything that's awesome about Ember CLI gets brought into a server environment, a server world. You get blueprints, uh, all these kinds of things. And then, re- really, my, my goal with, with this is, not only do I want it to be where you Ember G a model, and you've got a JSON API built for you from moment one based off of that model. But the entire framework is being designed to be real time from the beginning. But you can hook up to it with a WebSocket and you have a a request that you would normally send over Ajax and you have that object and it has the URL, the method, the data, maybe some header information. You take that object that you built to send via the Ajax method and instead you just send that through a proxy event in a WebSocket. And when it lands, it's gonna trigger that same route and you're gonna get the same payload back. And so you can just swap out whether you're requesting data via Ajax or requesting data via WebSocket very simply and easily, letting you consume the API via WebSocket, not just uh, use the WebSocket for a little bit of real time here or there. And then any change that you make to the API, you've got the opportunity to generate a change notification which will additionally, if it's part of that user's uh, stream, automatically pipe down through that WebSocket as a change notification that you can subscribe to and do something with. So my motivation there is that every single application that I've built uh, with Ember has needed an API framework like this. It just doesn't exist. Uh, The closest thing to it is you go build uh, just an API-only thing with Rails. But or you roll your own on something else. But even then, you don't have the real time aspect. You really just have you know an API framework. I wanted I wanted to really focus on building something that was API an API framework specific, uh, so that if you want to build applications in this style that, with Ember, you can, and then real time out of the box. So that that concern that I feel like most apps actually have, which is I want this to be real time, but ah, we don't have the dev. Time for that right now. We'll punt that till later, instead of it becoming a dev time issue. That's just something the framework handles for you from the beginning.
1: Very cool. Yeah, I uh, I definitely see this. Have you, uh, have, you have you looked? Uh, I see this need for real time. Have you have you looked into something like uh, Phoenix with Elixir and stuff? Because uh, I've been seeing that shift. A lot of people have been looking uh, specifically around. Like Dockyard has been looking to use uh, Elixir and Phoenix to get their you know their real time concurrent kind of feel from their API. Is this kind of like the Node Express version?
2: Yeah, this is more the Node Express version of that. Uh, one reason is you know JavaScript is my big strength, so I'm playing to that strength when I'm building this. Right. Uh, but additionally, it's I, I looked at Elixir, I looked at Phoenix, and I think they're really cool, and I want to do something with them. But I don't have time to go learn that right now. And additionally, looking at it and trying to get feedback from people, my the feedback I've gotten is this is really good for like stable systems. It's not really that good for like high-throughput systems. And maybe that's completely wrong, but that's the early feedback I've gotten on it. So I was just kind of like, well, if that's true, then I know what I can do with a node server. I've built a lot of them. And um, let me just take what I know and build something that I want.
1: Yeah, well, and you get the nice ES6 stuff and you can do... Like, I don't know. That's been one of my main concerns with just writing Node in general is, like, I've gotten so accustomed to writing JavaScript in this, in this other way and come back to Node and I'm, like, just sad. Just, like, why why do I see var as a not const? What's going on here? I don't even. Let me destructure. Come on.
2: Yeah. Yeah there's there's so much there and and it really is a pain that you can't write all of ES6 and node yet even when you update to 4 and five, node 4 and, is 5 landed now i think five's landed now even when you update it's uh like the spread operator doesn't work everywhere uh, the import export stuff doesn't work there's a lot of stuff that doesn't work yet and uh so being able to throw Ember cli in there with babel and toggle change the flags around to to account for what's missing it's really awesome, and you know it additionally gives you you know code minification out of the box, which we've realized that even on the server side that gives you a performance improvement on your on your boot time and even some on on uh code optimizations, so you get uh you know a lot of things that people are only sort of figuring out with with node, like oh, maybe we should use webpack or something and minify this stuff and and it, you're just getting already done uh so it really, I mean, it's a credit to Ember CLI and the Ember team that that this is a, a thing that's possible Definitely. Uh, to, to build a server framework because of Ember CLI.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks for listening to Ember Weekend. If you'd like to follow along, visit us
1: at emberweekend.com. Or you can find us at Ember Weekend, all one word, on Twitter or subscribe via
0: RSS. I'm Chase McCarthy. I'm Jonathan Jackson. And we'll see you next weekend.
1: All right.